0: just seem to fill in blanks here and there. And oftentimes the prophets are like that. And uh, apparently God gave them the prerogative to do that. And it's for us to study the whole body of Scripture and then try to put the pieces together. Uh, If you think Isaiah is hard to put in chronology, wait till we get to Jeremiah. Uh, The best I can... um, Organized Jeremiah is by themes, Uh, but that's it. From chapter to chapter, it's like, yeah. How many of you guys have, uh, I don't know if you're into outlining the Scriptures, but outlining John's epistles um, is impossible. But outlining Paul's epistles are very easy. So it's really interesting just the difference in the way God used people and the way they are to communicate his word and so you have the skill of Paul that God inspires the writings through him, and then you have John the fisherman, and uh, he all of his his stuff is true and consistent with the rest of uh, biblical revelation. It's just not organized as beautifully as as Paul or. Uh, Whoever the author of Hebrews was. Um, All kinds of fun and different personality throughout the scriptures. Um, When, just like other prophetic passages that you come to, we have to make uh, a decision about how we're going to interpret. And uh, I keep bringing this up because it's just the thing that you are confronted with every time you come to uh, a prophetic text Uh, You'll be confronted by it when you come to a poetic text, when you come to parables, when you come to all that stuff. You always have to figure out um, how exactly are you going to interpret the passage? What method uh, will you employ? So this particular chapter mentions the desert blooming, uh, God exacting vengeance on the enemies of Israel, physical healing for God's people, uh, the desert erupting with water, uh, causing streams to flow through it, pools to be made, uh, vegetation to grow there. Uh, and when we talk about the, the desert of Israel, which is the Negev, we're not talking about uh, eastern Washington. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, we're talking about almost zero vegetation at all. So we're talking about a desert and not high desert like we think of, okay? It talks about a highway built for the redeemed. It talks about, as we've already provided this, the sort of the title, the, 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 the ransomed of the Lord returning to Zion with singing and everlasting joy, and then the eradication of Israel's sorrows forever. Uh, so how do we interpret that... Um, mixture of things. Do we, do we do all of it literally? Do we do all of it symbolically? Or uh, do we kind of have a, a combination of both viewing some statements literally and others purely symbolic? Uh, if we take the non-literal approach, the question that you, you always have to ask is what key uh, do you use to figure out what the symbols symbolize? You understand? Because uh, if a symbol is thrown out there, you have to it has to be attached to something in reality if you are to understand what it means. It requires some kind of uh, key, some kind of way to figure things out. I don't have the key. so i i don't I don't believe it exists to begin with. Um, if we apply a hybrid method of literal and symbolic, How do we decide which statements are to be interpreted literally and those that are to be interpreted symbolically? And if we are to make the distinction between them, we're then stuck again with a key for those key statements of symbolism. Do you understand what I'm saying? But if we employ a a literal method, we can use the, the figures of speech in the same way that we use them in everyday language. Of course, Hebrew... Figures of speech, idioms are culturally relevant, right? Uh, They don't use the same figures of speech that we do. Um, How many of you guys have read? I think I've mentioned this before. It's called, it's from Charles Spurgeon, Plowman's Talk. I think it's called Simple Wisdom for Simple People. And Spurgeon was raised as a plowboy, and so he writes a book. Did you give that to me, Carl? Yeah, so he writes a book that is, uh, it's like just wisdom for everyday things in life. And if you've read Spurgeon, he is a master of British idioms and figures of speech, and he can employ them with just so much skill, but they're not the same as ours, all of them. Some of them he uses, we use today, Uh, but many of them that we don't. And what you have to do is you have to read the whole context and then the figure of speech dawns upon you and you go, oh, that's what that means. You knew that he was using a figure of speech um, but you couldn't figure out how until the whole context comes together. Has anybody read Plowman's talk? You've read it. It's riotous, isn't it? It is so funny because he's so sarcastic um, in, a, in a fun British Sort of way. How many of you guys have read uh, lectures to my students from Charles Spurgeon? Okay. Do you have the volume with the book review in the back? Does yours have that, Michael? the The book review in the back from the Pastors College. If you don't have, I should loan it to you. His critical review of works being published at that time. It's just hilarious reading through his opinion and perspective on other things that are being published. But anyway, it's just filled with figures of speech. He was a master uh, at all of that. And, um, but we use them in everyday language, and, uh, and the scriptures employ them all the time. It just makes language more colorful, more expressive, um, more engaging, and the prophets were very good at that. Now, I argue for the literal method because it, it, it keeps me off the hook of arbitration, uh, it, in which I don't want that position when I interpret the, the scriptures. I want them to speak for themselves. Uh, if we approach the chapter at face value, uh, taking into account all of the various tools of speech, like idioms, uh, we can avoid being too... Uh, arbitrary, uh, even too, giving, you know, giving too much authority to the interpreter. What the author meant to communicate, that's, that's what we're after, right? That's what we're after. And I, I believe the best way to discover that is by taking uh, his words at, at face value, okay? If we come to a statement that would lead to something absurd, that is, if we were to interpret it literally, we can safely assume then that the author is using an idiom. He's using some kind of figure of speech, a symbol. Otherwise, I believe the author's statement should be taken as literally as possible. Okay? Um, some people argue against this, saying that uh, you must pay close attention to the genre of the literature, especially if it's apocalyptic or poetic. And my response to that is, says who? Says who? Uh, And mind you, a consensus among certain scholars does not settle the issue. If it did, those scholars would have more authority than the text of Scripture, and they do not. They do not, okay? The Bible is the ultimate, the final authority on what it means by what it says, okay? Uh, People always remind me of um, this genre principle when it comes to the Psalms because they're poetic in form. But I say, so what? And the reason I say that is because Jesus and the apostles always interpreted the Psalms literally. Literally. okay. When we look at how Jesus and the New Testament authors interpreted the Old Testament, whether it's apocalyptic or poetic, they always do it literally. Uh, The only allegorical or uh, symbolic method used in the New Testament was by Paul. Um, but he wasn't actually interpreting a text of Scripture. He was using a, a historical narrative from Genesis to illustrate a truth that was taking place in Galatia. You guys remember the, the whole issue with Sarah and Hagar, Mount Sinai, Jerusalem, all of that? Um, He used a historical narrative to illustrate what was literally happening in Galatia at the time. You can read it. It's Galatians 4, 24 through 31. So for me, um, I try to stick to that example best I can. What I mean by that is the way that Jesus and the New Testament authors, how they used, how they interpreted the Old Testament. I'm going to do that now uh, again with uh, this particular chapter so let's, let's read the chapter, and then we'll get to our, our exposition. Isaiah 35, it's not a long chapter. Why don't you stand with me if you can. And pay attention to some of the, the expressive language here. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others." Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go upon it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return. And come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Father, we love your word and we thank you that you have revealed it to us. Not just not just your will for us, for humanity, for your church, not just what you are like in your attributes and your character, not even only the the plan of salvation, but Lord, the future. It's revealed, it's ordained, it's decreed, and Lord, we're grateful for that. Pray that you would encourage us by the text, and um, yeah, we love you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Look back, if you would, to verse 1, verse 1 and 2. He says the wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Now the gist of the two passages with all of this colorful language refers to something miraculous that's happening in the arid parts of Israel. Okay, Raise your hands, who's been to Israel? Okay, a few of you. How many made it south into the Negev? Who went to the Aqaba? Nobody? It's not really visiting Israel. It's a tourist thing down on the the, uh, the eastern tip of the Red Sea. It's for scuba diving and all that stuff. Did you guys go? Oh, you went to Egypt? No, I mean the Aqaba. Oh. Which, which finger? The east or the west? The west. Okay. Yeah. The text says that... <coughs> excuse me. The, the text says um, the desert is going to bloom. And in this miracle... The glory of the Lord and his excellence will be revealed by it. That is, people will know that God has worked something completely miraculous in that part of Israel. And the language is beautiful. It's talking about it being glad, rejoicing, joy, and singing. It's said to be like the blossoming of the rose. So the figure of speech here, I think, is that as the blossom unfolds, it portrays like the arms of the worshiper spreading out in praise. As things come up out of the desert floor and blossom, there's something beautiful about it. There's something that is, is just it's amazing. When I was in uh, Kenya, we went out to the bush for a couple days, and um, it had a little light rain had kind of just barely dampened the top of the soil. And the next morning, these white flowers shot up and died. But they just came up, blooms. I have pictures of them. And then they collapsed on the desert floor. Very interesting. Um, but this whole you know, personifying of nature is common, uh, especially for plant lovers. If you've been to my house, you know it's kind of a, a tropical forest. Um, and there's, when a plant does something good, I can hear my wife say, it really liked that. It really made it happy. And in my mind, I go, no, it didn't. But I know what she's saying, right? Yeah. And then the reference to Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon, uh, they speak of areas that are lush. So it's the very opposite of the desert. And it says that these will share their glory, as it were, with the desert. He's saying the desert will become like them. Come like them. Uh, the large photo on the left is the plain of Sharon in Israel. The upper right is Haifa on Mount Carmel. And then the lower right is Lebanon at the, the western foothills of, of the, uh, the mountains of, uh, that, that come off of Mount Hermon. It's very lush, very green. Um, gar- the, the Haifa there is the, uh, it's actually a pagan garden. The Baha'i Garden uh, should not be in Israel. And then you see the the, the luscious plains there below, the mountains, uh, all of that, that fertile stuff just coming off the mountains and making that soil rich. And then there in Sharon, um, you've heard of the Rose of Sharon, uh, just this beautiful place uh, in Israel. Yeah. This is the Negev in Israel. Negev means dry uh, there in the south. The furthest south that I've been is Beersheba, uh, and it, it's starting to get pretty dry there. Uh, the upper right photo is as green as it gets for a few weeks, and then it's back to very hot and very dry again. But in our text, the, the God will cause the desert to blossom and prosper like Carmel. Like Sharon, like Lebanon, okay, Uh, it will become not only really inhabitable. I know that the Bedouins are down there, but it takes a great amount of skill to to live as a Bedouin in these extremely dry places. But it will become inhabitable uh, and is going to provide an abundance for those who live there. Uh, What a sight that will be when this is covered with vegetation. Um, Now, because the whole chapter is placed in the context of God's ransomed people returning to Zion, it seems uh, best to say that this particular miracle will happen, I believe, when Christ returns and restores Israel to her land. Uh, God will probably prepare it for their, uh, we might say, their homecoming. Let's move on. We'll come back to some pictures later of... of, um, various areas he says strengthen the weak hands and make the feeble uh, make firm the feeble knees say to those who are fearful hearted be strong do not fear behold your god will come with vengeance obviously not against them but against somebody else with the recompense of god he will come and save you so the passages imply that just prior to these events, which I believe is also the second coming, Israel is going to be under serious uh, duress. But Isaiah says for them to take courage because God is going to come and he's going to rescue her. And in this process of rescuing her, he's going to have to rescue her from an enemy, from the one that is is persecuting or whatever uh, the case is. He will take vengeance on them. So things are going to get ugly before they get better. But they will get better. He says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Now, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness... And the rest of that sentence was supposed to be removed and put in the next verse. And I don't know why it has been maintained in, in verse 6, because it's actually a part of verse 7. But uh, that's neither here nor there. So following the rescue of Israel, uh, and you see there, we do have a, a word uh, of chronology. It says, then... So following the previous event, then God will also restore their bodies. He's going to rescue them from danger. And then whatever thing they're suffering from, he's going to, he's going to fix that. The blind shall see, the deaf will hear, the lame shall leap, uh, the mute will speak. Now that all rings a bell, right? Okay, from Sunday mornings, Matthew 11. Uh, you remember the John the Baptist is in prison. And uh, things aren't going as messianic as he had thought. So he sent his disciples to Jesus and said, Are you the coming one, or should we look for another? And then Jesus begins to talk about all of these miracles that he's performing. And many of those miracles we find right here in this section of Isaiah. And And Jesus knows that if John is going to have a proper answer, it's going to have to come from the text of Scripture. And so John is probably thinking of uh, here, Isaiah 35. There's a couple of other places in Isaiah. And Jesus is basically saying, uh, don't look any further. Um, I'm doing it. Just as the Scriptures foretold. Well, the question is, if Jesus fulfilled this prophecy from Isaiah 35, why weren't the other things mentioned in this chapter fulfilled as well? Well, first, I don't think Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. I think he was fulfilling it. Okay, And one day he will completely fulfill it when he returns. Okay, we don't, I don't think we should assume that a fulfillment is sudden and it's over. Okay. I think things can be fulfilled over time. When Jesus came the first time, we know that his miracles were intended to draw people to their, to the king. Uh, his presence, his, his miracles were giving Israel a foretaste of the kingdom and his of, of the king and his kingdom. It was a taste of the future for the redeemed of Israel. But it wasn't the full manifestation of either. But when he returns, There won't be a partial manifestation of anything. It will be the full manifestation of the king. You remember, we have John the Apostle. Uh, When he's speaking in his epistle, he says, uh, we were with the word of life. We we handled him with our hands. We, We saw him with our eyes. But then when he sees him in the revelation, things are different, aren't they? Okay, the king on earth at that time is different than Jesus in his glorified state. So different that John passed out when he saw him. He had to be essentially revived because Jesus in his glory was something different. And when he returns, he'll be in his glory. He will be far more impressive than what Isaiah 53 describes him. Remember Isaiah 53 said, there's nothing about him that we should pay attention to him. But when he comes again, everything about him will be worth paying attention to. It'll be the full manifestation of the king and his glory and his kingdom. Okay. A completed reality. And it will be for us as well, both for the, the soul. And as Romans 8 says, we're looking forward to the redemption of our bodies. How many of you guys have a redeemed body right now? I'm glad nobody raised their hand. Okay, I hope that even our teenage boys understand that they're not in a redeemed body. Even though they got all this chemistry just coursing through their veins, it's not there yet. Okay, but it's coming. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk, and none will be mute. But it won't just be the body that is healed. It says, For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Probably make for a good devotional. The parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. Now, as we talked about early in an earlier chapter of Isaiah, the land of Israel today enjoys tremendous agrarian prosperity as one of the leading exporters of fruit and flowers. Israel's quite impressive, okay? Uh, regardless of what somebody's political stance may be about Israel, there's many things impressive about Israel. Their exports, their agrarian exports are one of them. And, um, but it will be nothing compared to what she'll be capable of in the future. Of all the uh, agrarian markets that I've seen around the world, the one in Netanya, Israel is the most impressive. And it's not because it's the largest, because it's not. It's because of the variety that is there is all grown domestically. Well, who cares? Well, it's because of the variety. You have mangoes and you have apples. Okay? You have bananas and you have dates. You have roses and you have bird of paradise. You have wheat and you have tropical fruit, all grown within 100 miles of one another. That is very interesting. Very interesting. Okay? And as astounding as that is, Israel hasn't seen anything yet. What she currently does by drip irrigation, she will do by natural springs in the future, in the Negev. This place right here. No one is going to recognize this place at that time. Okay? That's beautiful, isn't it? Anybody know where that is? Take just take a wild guess. Hawaii. Good try. Where else? On the left is the Engedi kibbutz in Israel. The only thing missing from that picture is Adam and Eve. Okay? That is on the western bank of the Dead Sea. Yeah. The other two pictures are very close to where David hid from King Saul in 1 Samuel 24. Quite the hiding spot, huh? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. When Christ comes, all of the Negev... All of the Negev will enjoy waters that will burst from the desert floor. There will be streams and pools, grass and reeds and rushes, just as the text says. He'll make the desert a paradise for his ransomed people. That will be expanded in the the farthest parts of the Negev. I want to go. Yeah, who's been to uh, En Gedi when you went to Israel? Did you go? Yeah. I didn't get to go to En Gedi. Yeah, so this will actually be when people can sound the alarm on climate change because it's going to be radical, okay? But I don't think anybody will complain at that time. He says that a highway shall be there and a road. And it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. Now, you remember back in Isaiah chapter 2, a few other chapters leading up to now, we were introduced to the fact that all kingdoms, all the kingdoms of the earth, all nations will flow to Israel to learn the word of the Lord. Okay? Those nations, apparently, it seems, will travel to Israel on this this highway of holiness. Whatever it looks like, it's going to be some official thing. They'll travel that to see the Lord and to learn from him. Now, this is the highway of holiness because only those holy unto the Lord are permitted to travel upon it, okay? It says, the unclean, that is, those who are ceremonially unacceptable— um, those that are forbidden to be in the presence of God will be excluded from the road. It says the road belongs to the clean, those who are acceptable in God's sight. And the road is so obvious that you know, no GPS is needed uh, and none can stray or get lost on it. It says even if they were a fool. Even if they were a fool. How many you guys have had GPS trouble before? We had GPS trouble, which is now considered the most dangerous city in the world. Yeah, we were down in Louisiana, and we'd just gotten back from a swamp tour. We'd eaten all this Cajun food, and we were, we were well-glutted, and it was nighttime now, and we were trying to head back over the what looks like a lake to our camping area, and both of our phones were kept rerouting us. So we would get off the freeway, and then we'd have to turn around, and then it would start rerouting again. Both phones were so messed up. But then one time we ended up in a place that was not okay. And um, so the country boy had to get on with it fast. So you won't need a GPS for this, and uh, if you're a fool, it won't give you any trouble. Okay? Okay. He says, no lion shall be there. Um, Apparently that was a problem back in the day. Nor shall any ravenous beast go upon it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. So not only will the the way be clear, it'll be safe. Uh, No source of danger is permitted to to tread upon it. The path exclusively... uh, is for the redeemed, and it guarantees their safe travel. That is a miraculous statement. I mean, there's no earthly law enforcement that can guarantee your safe travel, is there? There's just not. But at this time, God will guarantee that. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So, the ransomed of the Lord, they are going to return on this road. It says, as they make their way, apparently they know what's up because they're going to be worshiping, they're going to be praising. It's going to be a, a, a caravan of celebration. So, Israel's not going to only be rescued. She's going to be redeemed and ransomed. And this is important. Her return to the land with all of its blessing will be possible because she has been redeemed from all of her sins. Now, when we look at the whole land issue, clear back in, from Genesis, the promises of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth, The land was unilaterally and unconditionally promised to Israel, but living in the land and enjoying God's blessings therein was conditional. Completely conditional. The land is yours, but if you want to enjoy it, you have to walk in holiness. The only possible way for Israel and for us... To meet this condition could only be through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whose perfect righteousness is imputed to the believer. That's the only way for Israel to meet the conditions necessary to remain in the land and to enjoy the blessings. Israel will have to come to faith in Christ. You see, the Old Covenant essentially demands moral perfection. Have you noticed that? I mean, you look at the Ten Commandments and you go, that's too difficult. That's too difficult. Because we are broken morally. Okay? And, but only Christ can offer that to the Father, that moral perfection, okay? in order to meet all the conditions in the covenant that Israel botched. And I must say that if that covenant had been committed to us, how much better do you think we would have done? That's why Paul says in Romans 11, do not boast against the branches, referring to Israel. We're not better than them. Okay, we're not better. We have a better covenant, but we have a better high priest. I mean, if we go through all that the author of Hebrews lists the better things, um, but we are not better than them. Christ met all the demands that God required. So at that time, when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, remember Jesus says, you will not see me again until you say these things. Uh, When they say those things in faith, they will get to return to the land flowing with milk and honey and they will get to enjoy all of its blessings, not because of what they did, but because of what Christ has done. And then they will rejoice uh, because of the source of their redemption and then the reality of it. And as the text ends, all of their sorrows will be forever eradicated. Do you love that? We, the prophecy begins with sort of where we're at in the world. Maybe not the exact time, but the same condition. Israel, unredeemed. And then we go to the redemption of Israel, the return of Christ, and then to this whole thing about the end of all sorrows. It's the similar path that we will take uh, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Amen? Yeah. All right, well, chapters 36 through 39 transition into the narrative parts of Isaiah. Uh, Looking at the Assyrian invasion, uh, Hezekiah's illness, and then that rascally um, convoy from Babylon that makes everything turn bad. We'll tackle all of that in the coming weeks. It'll be kind of fun to move from prophecy to narrative. (coughs) So there you have chapter 35, and um, we'll see you next week for the narrative. So if you would, please stand up and I'll, I'll get you out of here. A little early. If you have any questions regarding the text, I'd love to dialogue with you guys about that. All right. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word. Again, Lord, we thank you for the promise of hope that we have in it, a hope that was secured by your blood alone. We thank you for the redemption that is in Christ And Lord, we look forward to not only the fulfillment of your promises to us, but also to Israel, Uh, ancient promises. And as we look later on in the chapter, these promises are, as Isaiah says, exactly as the promise to Noah regarding the flood. And um, so, Lord, just continue to work in our hearts to help us to trust you more And Lord, as we continue to read headlines and consider the state of our world, the chaos that things are in, the the corruption of nations and governments, Lord, help us to take courage because you're coming to redeem us and you will uh, execute justice in the earth for your glory, Lord, and for the good of your people. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.